that is the textbook why a writer requires an editor because okay. the first draft or not the first but the draft that I turned in okay. um, said only that it was the happiest place I'd ever been and it was my editor my editor's assistant Drew Weitzman she circled this and was basically like WTF <laughs> You just spent, you know, 200 pages telling us the opposite. I don't believe you for a second. Usually I'm really good about editing. Uh, and I had this, like, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, that's like, that is how I feel. And you're just dumb, which I was like, whoa, okay, what's happening here? Clearly I need to work something out. Hi, welcome. Welcome to Writing Stories your spot for conversations with contemporary authors about the struggles and triumphs of writing and publishing. Hi, how's it going? Good morning. How's it going? My guest today has been widely published. You can find her work in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Paris Review, and several other baller publications. Her first memoir, Welcome to Shirley, Memoir of an Atomic Town, was one of Oprah's top five summer memoirs. And she's co-edited two essay collections, one of which, This is the Place, Women Writing About Home, was a New York Times editor's choice. Most recently, she released The Leaving Season, a memoir and essays, which is the book that we'll be talking about today. The Leaving Season is about moving from place to place, from the city to the country to the suburbs. It's about moving into and out of a marriage. It's about moving into and out of different phases of one's life. I found it to be intricate and nuanced and full of poignant images that really reverberated through my experience even long after I had finished reading. And I was also surprised to find that it was a book that kept getting better as it went along. It had one of my favorite endings that I've read in a long time. I feel like this is kind of unusual these days because I don't know if it's like the, the pressures of the marketplace, but often books don't sort of live up to the promise of their first few pages. In my uninformed opinion, um, the leaving season really does live up to the promise of the first few pages, though. And it makes sense that this book that is about leaving would leave us well, right? Leaving is something that Kelly McMasters has thought a lot about. So here, I talked to Kelly about her book, and I was just surprised to discover that even with a bio like Kelly's, where she's done a ton of publishing, having a book come out can still bring up some challenging feelings. And so I was curious to hear her dig into that experience of discomfort around publishing, and I hope that you will find it interesting. So what kind of kid were you, Kelly McMasters? I wrote all the time. Uh, I from I can still remember the first journal experience. And I was an only child. I still wasn't alone enough. So there, I had a tent in my room that I would then crawl into to write in my journal. And, and it was amazing to then close that journal and know that it was there. Uh, it was like such a thrill. And so, you know, out of my head and onto somewhere else. And then I would say in high, maybe junior high or high school, I can't remember. It was actually in a, um, we were learning how to use a computer. And so they were like, write whatever you want, uh, to make us try and use the computer. And so I wrote this horror 
short story. Right. There was an island and a, and a girl who was, you know, tr- trying to escape from wolves. And I don't know, something crazy happened. Uh, yeah. It was very dramatic. <laughs> and we had extra time. And so my teacher had me read it. And, and I remember looking up and the whole class was like, what happens next? And <laughs> it was, it was amazing to feed, to see um, that response and that feel, wow, okay. I'm communicating in a way that is very different from normal. When I got to college, I saw Terry Tempest Williams, my sophomore year, and she came to read, actually I have it right here, uh, Refuge. And she just being able to, to meet her. Mm-hmm. And it was creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know the term for it then, but there was something in that that felt like a lightning bolt that just made me think, wow, imagine doing that. Do you know what the lightning bolt was? Yes. I think it was for so long. I had sort of fetishized or exoticized. I never met a writer. I never went to a reading. Most of the books that I experienced were, you know, either so commercial or by dead people that it didn't occur to me that there could be living, breathing, working writers out there and having this, this living, breathing, compassionate human who was not a goddess. She was, you know, made of flesh in front of us reading about her own life. I think the fact that she was also writing about poverty and about cancer and about nature, and those were very much felt like my reality. Uh, yeah. That I also was seeing myself for the one of the first times. Now that I, I hadn't actually thought about that before this question, but my mother was dealing, was having surgery that year. And, you know, my first book talks a lot about very similar things in terms of um, low dose radiation and cancer and um, the environment and things like that. So it's that book still to this day, I'm actually writing a story for the Atlantic right now that involves refuge. I mean, it's still probably the mo- one of the most primary texts of my life. Oh my gosh. I, I want to read it. I actually, I feel like I had kind of a similar sort of creative awakening experience when I read Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. And I was like, it's like a person, like these words were on somebody's computer at some, like a person made this. <laughs> yes. When did you start referring to yourself as a writer? I think for me, so much is wrapped up in external validation that I only gave myself that permission when I was able to say, look at this piece of paper that says I went to school and now I'm a writer, which is ridiculous, but that's what I, what my brain needed. And then could you like identify as a writer and like cocktail parties once you had the MFA? I think thinking about this book, one of the reasons that I was drawn to my husband was because he was the first person who I heard call me that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's powerful stuff. Yes. I was not even in the habit of saying that myself yet. And so to hear it from him was intoxicating. <laughs> so when did you start writing The Leaving Season? The first three months of 2020 were some of the most glorious of my whole life because I got the, um, I got this book deal 
And also we sold the anthology for wanting uh, women writing about desire. And I got a Fulbright to Norway and it was the whole next year of my life was mapped out and it was going to be, or actually the next two years. And it was going to be amazing. This is like right before COVID. Right? Yeah. This, this yeah. happened in like January, February. And then I started, everything was, was ready to go. And then um, March happened. So so my plan of finishing the book by the summer, moving to Norway, having the kids experience outdoor school, um, you know, traveling to the Arctic for the next book, all of this just imploded. And I wound up, uh, I'm actually, you know, world pandemic and agony aside, very grateful for the time that it did give me for this book because due to publication issues, both of the books that I signed in within those six weeks wound up coming out years later than they initially were supposed to. That gave me a lot of time and I needed it. I didn't realize that I needed it, but Mm -hmm. the first time I, I took a year and turned the first draft in and thought, okay, great. I'm on my way to the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts my first ever residency. I'm going to start my new whatever next project. And Jill, your editor said, you know, we need a phone call. And so on the drive down to Virginia, we had an hour long phone call where she basically said, it's looking okay. It's about 70% there. And it was really hard to hear. And so luckily I had the next 10 days to squirrel away and uh, really hit it in a different way and see it in a different way. And then I was able over the next six months to really just rewrite it basically. And then I turned it in again and, and I thought certainly now it's done. And she was like, okay, 92. (laughs) (laughs) And this editor is amazing for, for this, you know, um, after the fact, it feels amazing. It did not feel amazing at the time. She, you know, would not give me a pub date until I was done. So, and that's why she is such a good editor. I mean, the people on her list are just incredible. And she, she kept saying, when it's done, we'll talk about when it comes out, but you have to finish it first. Mm-hmm. And that was agony, but a really, great lesson for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would say, yeah, it was about two from, from early 2020. I think it was, it was almost a full two years uh, of writing and rewriting and rewriting the book. From when you sold it until when you felt like it was truly done. Okay. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about how it changed over time? You know, the old adage that writing is 10% and revision is 90%. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly my experience with this book. I mean, there were, these weren't necessarily all the original essays, right? Um, it started where it ended in the Arctic. I don't know what that book would have looked like, <laughs> which even in the Arctic, those were icebergs and divorce and it was loneliness, you know. It was, okay. It's still- okay, so like same themes, but the content shifted over the course of revision. Okay, so let's skip forward to when you had the essays that you wanted to include in the collection. And then you're rereading and you're looking for some of the like resonances that were there already. And then would you say that you, you made changes to emphasize particular 
themes once you had read them all together or? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And certainly with the opening with Home Fires, there were, I think there were four iterations of different essays that opened the book. So that probably started at about 20 pages and then just reduced, reduced, reduced. And well, and if we add the other three times I tried it, uh, probably 60 pages down to, I don't know, it's four pages maybe. So yeah, that just a, a real, um, reduction process. This was the one, this was the last essay that I wrote. And I realized in writing it, how much fire is present throughout the, the book, but I, but I wrote it and then realized it. Okay. Oh, um, interesting. okay. So you did, <laughs> did you, but were you writing it to be the beginning of the book? Yes. Okay. And so when you were like, okay, I'm going to write the essay that is the beginning of this book. What did you want to be sure that the essay did? In order for it to, I believe, to cohere as a memoir in essays, uh-huh. um, I, I thought a lot of structure and wanted it to be what I would call a, a four, one, two, three, four, five, uh, structure. So what's so, that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. That makes no sense. Um, so I'm, I wish that I had them up still, but I moved in the process, um, more boxes. Uh, <laughs> but you're, normally when I'm working on something, I'll have an entire wall of, uh, index cards. Okay. And so that's how I structure things. And okay. so to, to make buckets of time, so just straight chronology, chronology as our friend within each essay and then within the book as a whole, chronologically, if one is the earliest, right? So that would be the intrepid essay, essentially. And five is the last time I see you. I wanted to start at four. Okay. Things are not fully understood or grappled with. But the most important relationship in that book is the three of us with this heavy absence. Okay. Okay. So I wanted all those and the fact that um, the idea of safety was important to me as well. And this and nostalgia, obviously, which a lot of the book has to do with that. When your editor finally said, it's ready. And your words were printed on pages and those pages were bound together in a book and those books arrived on your doorstep. What did that feel like? It was funny when, when the, (laughs) I, I almost wanted to write an essay about boxes, only boxes, um, because I was, I had had a, um, an anthology come out a few months before my book and that I co-edited. And so I got that box and it, you know, sat in the living room for 0.2 seconds before I, you know, tore it open, was so excited and I couldn't wait to see the book. And this box, the box of brand new leaving seasons sat in my living room for weeks, not open it because I think it would make it real. And I think often, you know, there's obviously Pandora's box, but when you think about moving or, you know, the, the opening and closing, it's, it's, it's very ritualistic. And, and I think for me, although I've had a few really interesting book club discussions where people have pushed back on this, for me, a lot of this book is about secrets and shame. And I think the, 
experience of the box arriving uh, was so dysregulating Mm -hmm. because the opening and closing of boxes in the book, right? That's real. Like that, that is a, (laughs) that is something that has happened throughout my life and means something. And here all of a sudden arrives on my doorstep, a box of books that I need to open and celebrate. And yet the last thing I want to do is open it or celebrate it. Yeah. So what, what was the feeling? Yeah, it really felt like if I opened that box, it would be real and the world would just explode. Okay. Because the world would see such an intimate picture of your internal experience. There's this gorgeous essay. It just came, or it's actually coming out in next month's Atlantic. It's the cover story by Janisha Watts and it's called, I never called her mama. I'm going to cry even just thinking about it. It's a former student of mine and she talks so much about the weight of shame and silence and story. And then I don't want to give it away, but the last line essentially talks about this moment of what it means uh, to telegraph your truth. Mm -hmm. All of it. And then it's like a circuit break and then you're, you're almost a new person. And for me, sometimes it's just easier to keep the box shut. But really the box opened much wider than it could possibly have in your living room, right? Because after that box arrived, your book was published and shared with the world. So what was that like? I think the problem with that box of books was that I was again, in the same way that I did as a kid, just experiencing it as an object. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. About it being in someone else's hands and reading it. Mm-hmm. And it was when I started going out on tour and to bookshops and book clubs and talking to people who'd read it. And when they then would come up after every event, people come up and say, it took me 20 years uh, or want to share their leaving story or want to, or they, they see themselves differently. Mm-hmm. And it's such a good reminder that this book is not really about me. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. about the reader and their experience of it. And that is something that when you're writing it, the writing process is so myopic Mm -hmm. and you're at the bottom of this well, you can't, you can't really remember that there's a whole world up there um, Mm -hmm. in order to get it done. But it felt great climbing back out of that well Mm -hmm. and feeling that and being reminded about, oh, right. I'm part of this larger thing. Many writers before me, many writers after me. And thank God for them, uh, because that's the only reason that I could do it. Anything, anything else you want to say about publishing? I, I run a publishing program at Hofstra. So I think a lot philosophically, academically about sort of the cultural, you know, responsibility of the publishing world. Mm -hmm. And it's very, 
interesting to be on both sides, the academic side and inside it as a writer. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I wish that the two sides would, were able to speak to one another more. For example, like right now, all of the fear and hand wringing about who's buying Simon and Schuster, what will happen and publishing is dead and dying. And, um, and I get the great thing is I get to go to class every Tuesday, Thursday with these students who love books so much mm-hmm. and they want to change the world mm-hmm. and they want to do that through books. Mm-hmm. And I wish that we could remember <laughs> that my world changed through books mm-hmm. and right. Just the power of these stories, right? It's not, and again, it's not the physical object. It's the sharing of the stories and that collective um, coming to the fire mm-hmm. and and hearing each other. And that, I think, is what gives me hope and, and continue, helps me continue to return to the industry, <laughs> um, both as a writer and as an academic. That's Kelly McMaster's. She teaches writing and publishing at Hofstra University, and her book, The Leaving Season, A Memoir and Essays, is out now. You can find a link to purchase it in our show notes, and you'll also find links to her two co-edited essay collections, Wanting Women Writing About Desire, and This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. Thank you so much for listening to Writing Stories. As always, I wish you much inspiration, stamina, and success. Your inspirational quote for today is from Octavia Butler. She says, you don't start out writing good stuff. You start out writing crap and thinking it's good stuff. And then gradually you get better at it. That's why I say one of the most valuable traits is persistence. Keep going. If you enjoyed what you heard, please follow us, subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We would so appreciate that. And definitely check out our next episode, a conversation with novelist Christina Consolino about her book, The Weight We Carry.